Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and this week we've got the international man of history that is Professor Neil Ferguson. You know him from his innumerable TV shows and his best-selling books on Henry Kissinger, The Pity of War, and now Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. Inspired by COVID, but by no means a COVID book, Neil takes us masterfully through the history of economics, the history of war, politics, and network science to provide us with a history and also a general theory of disaster. His take on the First World War and the Spanish influenza is especially mind-blowing. So here he is, Neil Ferguson on the history of doom. Hi Neil, good to see you. How are you doing? Well, as well as can be expected in the final phase of a plague, I think is the answer to that. The plague year is always longer than a year and anybody who's studied the history of pandemics knows that they come in waves and they play surprise tricks on you. But I would say that to have been a historian at this time and one able to work from home easily and to inhabit a relatively spacious home has made the experience a very bearable one for me. In fact, I'm almost at the point of confessing my guilty secret. I've quite enjoyed the pandemic, which is a terrible thing to say about catastrophe that's killed more than 3 million people, maybe much more than 3 million people, depending on what you think of the statistics. But it has been an opportunity for me to spend a lot more time with my family and not be traveling. And I have to admit that has been pretty good. Do you not miss the hustle and bustle of an academic conference? No, but then I've never been that sociable. I'm actually a repressed misanthrope who's happiest in his study with a pile of books. I think that's why people become historians. They're sort of sociopaths who'd rather hang out with the dead reading their old letters than be at parties. I was speaking to a colleague the other day and they said that they think that we've all got a military history complex and I'm not entirely sure it's curable. Well, military history is a sort of endangered discipline in the United States outside of the various military institutions. There are very few posts for military historians in the major US universities and very few courses on offer. So if there's a military historical complex as opposed to a military industrial complex, it's quite a small one these days or it exists outside the commanding heights of academia. You're sadly not wrong. Well, it is great to chat to you again. It 
It's only been six months since we last spoke, but that does feel like a, a very long time ago. And back then you were working hard on a new book project, which is now finished, it is now out, it is Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. So give us a little introduction, a teaser. What's it about? Well, it's a general history of disaster, which attempts, among other things, to put our present disaster in some kind of historical context. But it's not a COVID book. The last three chapters deal with the COVID pandemic. Most of the book is an attempt to bring all the different forms of disaster together between one set of book covers. I would say the innovative piece here was to try to write in the same space about natural and man-made disasters, because we tend to draw a distinction between those. I wanted to argue in the book that that distinction is a little bit artificial. Hence the subtitle, The Politics of Catastrophe. The idea is that really all disasters, even the ones that we think of as natural, are at some level politically mediated. They all become man-made, if only because we decide as a people to build a city right next to a volcano or right on a fault line. So even a geological natural disaster has some political character to it. So that's really the kind of first and most obvious point of the book. But the second point was to offer some kind of general theory of disaster. Once you've brought them all together under one roof, well, what do they have in common? And I observed that rather like Tolstoy's happy families, all disasters are similar, even if they seem at first sight very different. So you might think that a pandemic and a world war are very different things, but actually at the point of outbreak, they can have a great many things in common. So part of the challenge, which I think is relevant to your field of interest, was to bring military disaster into the same domain as pandemics or, for that matter, famines. So that's the idea of the book. And I guess the last point is, are there takeaways? Because you might object to the book by saying, how could you begin to write this book when the pandemic wasn't over? And my answer would be, because we need to learn sooner rather than later from some of the mistakes that were made last year, not least in the UK and the US. And we can do that now before this thing is over. And in fact, we probably would be well advised to do that. So there's a set of insights into what it is about disaster management that works and what doesn't work to try and explain why so many countries that you'd have expected to handle a pandemic well actually handled it really badly last year. Well, you've mentioned it. We've all lived through it. And it certainly isn't a COVID book, but it's a book that's definitely been inspired by COVID. And you also mention military history and what we can learn from warfare as well. And as I was reading through the book, I kind of found myself drawing on a little bit of history because we, of course, know about those who may have tried to warn about wars that could occur in the future, whether that be the First World War or the Second World War. And as I was reading through the beginning of your book and your own personal journey, I was drawn back to our own conversations back in January, February 2020, when you were going on about this virus that was in Wuhan and it was spreading quickly and it could cause a regional or a global pandemic. And I think I looked at you a little bit like you were eccentric or perhaps a doom monger, but I wasn't the only one, was I? Because world leaders at the World Economic Forum in Davos were doing the same thing. No one was listening. Well, I think one of the odd things about January 2020 was that my antennae were positively quivering the minute I heard about a strange new form of pneumonia in Wuhan, which was in the first week of January. 
And I think my antennae are quite sensitive to historical disaster because I've been writing history for long enough to have read a lot about a lot of pandemics. And so in that sense, I kind of know what to look for. There are certain familiar patterns, that first story from a place in China, that, that's a red flag right there. And then denials by officials in a communist regime that there's a problem that should set another red flag up the mast and so forth. So I think historically, I have quite good pattern recognition when it comes to disasters like this. But I'd also been thinking about a book like this before January 2020. And it was a funny kind of idea that I hit on, namely to try and write a history of the future. By which I mean, I wanted to look at the ways in which science fiction writers, all the way back to Mary Shelley, had thought about the end of the world, or at least had thought about dystopian, disastrous futures. Because in the end, the problem with being an applied historian, which is how I think of myself, is that if you rely entirely on history to help you think about the present and plausible futures, you can get a lot out of that, no question. But it's hard to have the role of technological discontinuity. It's difficult to tease out of the historical record. And so reading science fiction in 2019 was my attempt to cure myself of a certain myopia. And if you read science fiction, then you also get your antennae to start being more sensitive because so much science fiction, including Mary Shelley's Last Man, which I think was the original science fiction book, so much of it's about pandemics. And I'd been reading Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Crake, which is about a catastrophic genetically engineered plague. So I was ready to spot this pandemic, not just as an historian, but as a reader of science fiction. So when I turned up at Davos for the World Economic Forum in mid-January, I guess I expected to have conversations about this because it seemed so obvious to me that this was really going to be a big one. And almost nobody there was talking about that. And most people were giving me the same funny look that you were giving me because they'd come to talk about climate change. That was the agenda. Greta Thunberg was there to be cheered and Donald Trump came to be booed on that issue of climate change. The global risk report that the World Economic Forum publishes just before the World Economic Forum each year had as its top four or five risks exclusively climate-related risks. And there was no mention of pandemic. Pandemic had dropped out of the top 10 global risks back in, I think, 2008. So I did feel a little bit like Cassandra wandering around the conference hall, trying to engage people in conversations about the coming pandemic and trying to explain that while climate change is a very serious issue, a pandemic is moving much, much faster and indeed is on a plane on its way to an airport near you. There was a moment of utter horror. I remember it now because I first I began to think I had the virus. That was the first phase of the anxiety because I had just been in Asia in the first week of January. And then I noticed that there were several people from Wuhan on the list of participants at Davos. So I wrote a desperate email to Klaus Schwab saying, I do hope this isn't going to be a super spreader event. I subsequently was told that those delegates had not traveled to Davos, and I'm going to believe that. But I'm not the only person who had a very bad cough at around that time. Gillian Tett of the Financial Times recently told me that she was also very, very ill on a ski trip after Davos. So the story begins a little bit like a movie in which the narrator is himself caught up in the pandemic. I think that email is going to be one for future historians, Neil, to dig out of the archives and to say there was a warning here and it was a super spreader <laughs> event. If indeed future historians ever bother to go through our emails, my sense is that they will simply reel back in utter horror at the sheer scale of the challenge. We've generated such vast 
amounts of text since the advent of email. And I imagine that future historians will be relying on some AI version, some kind of algorithm to do the research, because it'll be impossible to read through all the old emails. I mean, that's already the case. It makes it very hard to imagine how the history of any of this gets written in the ways that I was trained to write history. Well, yeah, you and me both. But it's good to hear that history and going as far back in history as even reading the literature of people like Mary Shelley is useful and helps us understand what could occur into the future. This brings us back to your book and the historical case studies within it. Now, I'm working my way through it. I'll be honest, I haven't finished it yet, but it is a bloody good page turner. And I was struck by one quote, a little ditty from the First World War that goes, the bells of hell go ting-a-ling a-ling, but for you, not for me. Is this humanity's signature tune? Do we always think that this is going to happen to someone else and not to us? Oh, death, where is thy sting a ling a ling Oh, grave thy victory. I mean, there was a whole song that was a parody of a Salvation Army hymn. And I knew this song. This is the kind of song that I'd probably been taught by one of my grandfathers. And I'd come across a recording of it by Brendan Bean or someone like that. But it wasn't until I was writing Doom that I decided to do a little bit of research on the Bells of Hell. And the Bells of Hell was indeed a song sung by British soldiers, Tommies, in the trenches before the Battle of the Somme. And this was heard by an officer who reported back to friends and family. And there's a lovely letter that I quote in the book about what this signifies. And it's not defiance of the enemy, it's defiance of death, I think. And it's gallows humour, which is an important part of British culture. I think we certainly have been laughing at death in Britain for many years. And the Bells of Hell is part of a style of humour that was certainly still prevalent when I was growing up in Glasgow. But the idea that you're kind of singing the bells of hell go ting-a-ling-a-ling for you but not for me on the eve of the Somme offensive is remarkable because, of course, the bells of hell were potentially going ting-a-ling-a-ling for every single soldier who was going to be involved in that offensive, and the odds of being killed or wounded were very high indeed. I mean, we know that young men underestimate their probability of death. And that's why they're the ideal people for fighting wars, quite apart from their physical fitness. But to me, there's something more general here, namely that in the face of proximate death, and death is much more proximate for people throughout most of history than it is for people today, there is a temptation or perhaps a healthy psychological impulse to laugh at it or to mock it because the alternative is a sort of paralyzing fear. And that's what's, I think, interesting, that in those days, and I think this continued to be true for much of the 20th century, in the face of all kinds of really quite serious risks of death, including later, of course, the risk of nuclear war, the human impulse is not to just adopt the fetal position under the table, but the human impulse is to, I guess, put on a show of bravado and laugh in the face of death. Is there not a more serious point here as well, and perhaps a historical lesson, that it's this sort of attitude that is the making of our own demise as human beings? Is this the same reason why people would go out and not wear masks or believe that the virus is fake? Undoubtedly, there were all kinds of bells of hell moments, especially in the United States, but also in the UK and elsewhere over the past, whatever it is, 16 months. Young people were not actually wrong to be somewhat dismissive of the risks 
posed by the virus SARS-CoV-2 because it was obvious from pretty early on that it disproportionately killed the elderly. And the younger you were, the less risk you were running. There was also, I think, a not surprising reaction against some of the restrictions that were imposed back in March last year. We use this term lockdown, which covers a multitude of different restrictions, but taken together, a lot of restrictions were imposed on young people for a risk that was predominantly run by older people. And I didn't find it surprising that there was resistance to that and rule-breaking, because in the end, it was pretty hard to tell a teenager to essentially submit to house arrest for what were really quite small probabilities of illness and tiny probabilities of death. However, I think there's a difference here, which is that in World War I, if you were a Tommy, if you were on the front line, your probability of death is pretty high and your probability of getting wounded seriously was even higher. So by comparison, I think the defiance of COVID by younger people was not so nuts. The thing that puzzles me still is the older Americans who have not only resisted mask wearing, but now resist getting vaccinated. And that's very odd because they are clearly in the vulnerable demographic and there is no downside risk worth talking about getting a vaccine, much less to wearing a mask. So that's puzzling. Now, I interpret that as being part of a relatively recent phenomenon in which public health policy has become highly politicised along partisan lines. People weren't having those arguments about vaccines in the 1950s when, generally speaking, we celebrated the fact that we were coming up with vaccines for infectious diseases. But the fact that in America in 2020, every single issue of public health policy, from masks to potential therapies to vaccines, became divisive on party lines. That's, I think, quite novel, actually. I mean, of course, there have been political arguments in the past. There was an anti-mask league in 1918-19 in San Francisco, and there have always been anti-vaxxers in the United States, going right back to variolation against smallpox. But if I compare this pandemic with a comparable pandemic like the Asian flu of 1957-58, one of the big differences that strikes me is that there was a consensus on public health policy in the 1950s and there really ceased to be by 2020. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There are stories to tell, myths to explore, legends that shaped the medieval world to captivate the imagination. I'm Matt Lewis, and with my co-host, Dr. Kat Jarman, I've gone medieval. We're waiting here for you to join us. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and let everyone know that you've gone medieval with History Hits. Now, you mentioned anti-mass lobbies in 1918, 1919, around that period. Why would that be the case? Would this have anything to do with perhaps the Spanish flu and uh, a little bit to do with the First World War as well? Well, it was all to do with the Spanish influenza. I remember when I was writing a book called The Pity of War many years ago in the 1990s, coming across the startling reality that more people had died of the Spanish flu, the strain of influenza that spread from mid-1918 all around the world, than had died from the war. And I can remember thinking, hang on, that's, that's strange. I feel like I've read way more books about the First World War than about the Spanish influenza. And I delved into the data, because that's kind of how I think about things, on the German army's state of health. And there are wonderful and very precise Germanic records on numbers of soldiers reporting sick right through the war. And noticed this big increase in the number of German soldiers reporting sick in the summer of 1918, the decisive phase of the war, as you know, when the British army suddenly managed to stop beating the German army for the first time in the war on a sustained basis really from the Battle of Amiens to the final collapse. And I realized that there was a possible explanation here for the German collapse that wasn't really in the literature, namely that they were all getting the Spanish influenza because most, by the middle of 1918, most armies were suffering from this very contagious form of flu, which had started in American military bases, as far as we can tell, and then had crossed the Atlantic with troop ships and was very contagious as well as very lethal to particularly to people in their prime. So this is something that I remember from very early in my career as a scholar, as a moment when I saw how history's lens can sometimes be distorting. We think much, much more about the man-made disaster of the war and not really as much about the natural disaster of the pandemic, even though actually the pandemic was larger in terms of its death toll and may even be the explanation for the end of the war. And it's an amazing story. It continues to play a part after the war. It plays a big part in the peace negotiations because Woodrow Wilson gets the Spanish flu 
And it's very, very ill indeed. And as I show in Doom, it's sort of bizarre to his associates and advisors that he suddenly capitulates on a whole series of sticking points in the negotiations after he comes back from his sickbed. And they agree that this illness has fundamentally changed him. In truth, his health never recovered from this flu, which a great many other participants in the Versailles Peace Conference got. I think John Maynard Keynes may have had it. I think Lloyd George had it. So I'm fascinated by that kind of thing because... In a way, one of the things that we should try and do as historians is to get the distortion out of the lens and try to refocus our retrospective camera and see more clearly the enormous importance infectious disease has played throughout history. And indeed in military history, I guess one of the things I learned writing this book was how many battles are ended by disease, not by military victory. How many wars have been terminated by the fact that typhus is actually decimating both sides. That's incredible. If we try and take some of the lessons from that period then, do we start to see any social structures, rapid responses that are put in place, early warning mechanisms to help us spot and deal with the emergence of future disasters, future pandemics? Do we see this come out of the post-war period? If you take the very long view, pandemics have been causing the biggest disasters in history in terms of the death toll since the time of Thucydides and Time and again, as you read your way through history, you'll come across these extraordinary moments of excess mortality. The Black Death of the mid-14th century is probably still the biggest, but, you know, the plague of Justinian in the late Roman period was plausibly as bad, probably not quite as bad. And then you find that even in modern times, there are these enormous outbreaks of new diseases which can cause death tolls greater than most wars. I mean, as recently as in the late part of the 20th century, there was a pandemic that killed more than 30 million people in the end, HIV AIDS. And we sometimes forget that we've already lived through a pandemic. It was just a slower burning one because it was a sexually transmitted disease, not a respiratory disease. We've got much better at understanding the science, of course, of infectious disease. People in the 1340s had no idea how bubonic plague was being spread, though they had lots of theories. The theories were just about all wrong. We still did not really have a great understanding of viral diseases in 1918, and that's why they weren't able to find a vaccine for the Spanish flu. And indeed, they didn't really have any good therapies either because of the complications that would tend to arise. People's lungs would become congested and then infected, and that was what killed people. So we're in a far better position even than our great-grandparents just over a century ago. The 1918-19 Spanish influenza was far more deadly, maybe 30 times roughly more deadly in terms of its impact on global population than COVID has been. And yet, although our scientific understanding has much improved, and you'd have thought we'd be doing really much better at dealing with a new infectious pathogen, the striking thing to me about 2020 was how badly we did, given our knowledge, given what we already knew about coronaviruses after SARS in particular, but also MERS. And one of the puzzles that I address at the end of the book is why was that? Because on paper, the United States and the United Kingdom were ranked number one and number two in the world for pandemic preparedness in 2019. In a very broad survey, which was published by the Economist Intelligence Unit, and the World Health Organization gave the US a top rating at around the same time for preparedness. And yet, 
Compared with some Asian countries, the US and the UK did really badly with high, high excess mortality. The worst excess mortality that we've seen in the US since World War II and in the UK since the influenza outbreak of 1951. Why was that? And it's not immediately obvious because the simple obvious answer is, well, because President Trump was a fool and Boris Johnson's a clown. That was the media narrative last year. And that implied that if somebody else had been president, say Joe Biden had got the job a year earlier, or Boris had somehow not replaced Theresa May or David Cameron, it would all have gone much, much better. And I just don't think that's plausible. In fact, I think it's totally implausible that a different president or different prime minister would have produced a much better outcome. Because it's not really about the man at the top or woman at the top when something like this happens. It's much more about how the people further down the command structure, whose job it is to do pandemic preparedness, how they perform. And I can't help concluding that they performed much worse than one would have expected and hoped. Now, if everybody had done terribly all around the world, you could say, well, that's life. It was just one of those things. But in fact, in Taiwan and in South Korea and a bunch of other countries, including Australia and New Zealand, they did not experience the extraordinary excess mortality that we've seen in the US and the UK. So the book offers in its concluding chapters an argument based on the historical experience that very often in a disaster, the point of failure is not at the top, it's further down. And you can't just get away with blaming the president or prime minister when a disaster strikes any more than it was Winston Churchill's personal fault that Singapore surrendered or that it was Asquith's fault that the Somme offensive was a failure. I mean, yes, the buck stops with the person at the top. That's true, as Harry Truman famously said. But to imagine, therefore, that that presidents are responsible for pandemic preparedness, that Trump should have been ramping up testing for COVID in the early part of 2020, that's to misunderstand how governments work. And it's not like we don't try and stop the next catastrophe or disaster from happening. Despite all measures put into place, the Second World War follows the First World War. Is this a failure of imagination of what can go wrong from the measures that we put into place? Or do we just tend to fight the last war or crisis that has, well, been dealt to us? Certainly, those of us who study military history are very familiar with the idea that generals are fighting the last war, that they fail to visualise the war of the future. And if I had a Bitcoin for every time somebody said the Maginot line to me to convey this idea, I'd be a very rich man and wouldn't have to write books for a living. I think it's true to an extent that not only generals, but, but civilian administrators tend to look at the recent past and project it forward in whatever preparations they're making, whether it's for future war or some other form of disaster. And I think it's true to say that one of the biggest challenges, whichever field you're in, is to visualise the disaster of the future, allowing for technological change. Now, we've all known this for a very long time. And that's why there's always a market for books about the war of the future. There was already a market for such books before 1914. I think the difficulty is to translate those books into policy. Jim Stavridis has just published a novel which imagines a US-China war that escalates all the way to nuclear war. But it's set in, I think, 2034. And if I'm a Pentagon planner, that's sort of beyond my time horizon. It's certainly beyond my time horizon if I'm Joe Biden and I'm focused on the 2022 midterms. So part of the problem is not so much imagination, it's just incentives. 
it's expensive to prepare for the war of the future because you kind of have to prepare for it as well as the war of the past. You have all these legacy costs, your aircraft carriers, brilliant technology for World War II, but we still have them and they're still core to American national security. It's very difficult to say they're obsolete, the Chinese can sink them. We have to build an entirely new generation of military hardware. Very few militaries are good at writing off the obsolescent technology that they already own. So I think the problem is that you're kind of bound to be fighting the war of the past because that's what you've got kit for. And then you have to add on top of that the cost of the kit for the war of the future. That's when you run into budget constraints as well as constraints of imagination. So the argument that that I make in the book is it's not just that we're kind of trapped with myopic visions of what will come next. It's also that we really try a bit too hard to project what will come next. I mean, we've got models that will tell you with all kinds of apparent precision what climate change will do in 2050 and what the population of China will be by 2050 and what the GDP of the United States will be by 2050. And we spend a lot of our time using quite quantitative mathematical models to scope out the future. The trouble is that we get rather fixated on one future that we find interesting. The one we find most interesting at the moment is disastrous climate change, the worst case scenario of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And I'm taking that as seriously as anybody. And, you know, I'm not actually quite as sanguine as Bjorn Lomborg that we can deal with this. It's just a matter of mitigating the inevitable. But my concern is that if we think all the time about climate change, we will not think enough about the other disastrous scenarios and we'll be back at Davos 2020. A pandemic will be raging and coming towards us and we'll be talking about climate change. The next disaster will not be climate change. Climate change is quite far off as disasters go. The next disaster might not be another pandemic either. I mean, I would say the next disaster could be a really large-scale cyber attack that disables the critical infrastructure of the United States. And I hate to think how we'd cope with that, though I'm sure we have a plan for it. I mean, we will undoubtedly have all kinds of impressive 36-page documents, the cyber war preparedness plan, and it'll turn out to be just as good as the pandemic preparedness plans were last year. So that's my sense. We've got to actually stop meticulously preparing for the crisis of our choice, we need, I think, to be much more rapid reaction in the knowledge that we can't predict the next disaster. And it could take any one of a dozen different forms. The best thing of all is to be quick on the draw, to see the crisis early on and be fast in your response. That's what the Taiwanese and the Koreans got right. And that's what almost everybody in the West got wrong, whether they had a populist president or not. Well, Neil, you've provided us with so many gems on how we can try and stop ourselves from being doomed to repeat this history. So tell us, where can people buy the book? They can buy the book anywhere that sells books. It should be in every good British bookstore at the moment and in US bookstores too, and of course available from the Death Star Amazon, should you choose to enrich Jeff Bezos further, and uh, and other online sites such as Barnes & Noble, which you should not neglect. I'm so glad you called me a doommonger earlier, because it only occurred to me this morning that I now am a doommonger. But being a doommonger on Zoom sounds like the basis of a very good limerick, if I could only think up another word that ends in oom. I hope that this book will be widely read, because Ultimately, we've got to change the way that we think about disaster. Not only policymakers, but ordinary people. Because in truth, 
I don't think ordinary people did a great job of dealing with this in most Western countries. And that's because we tend to swing from complacency to panic in the face of disaster. We're complacent when early action would really help. And then we panic in ways that are also sometimes counterproductive. So this is not just a book in which you can look back on disaster and say, gosh, I'm glad I wasn't there when Vesuvius erupted. It's a book which allows you to think how to cope and how to act when the next disaster strikes, as it will, unexpectedly, randomly and unpredictably. Neil, you're not wrong. Thank you so much. I look forward to talking again soon. Thanks very much, James. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.